hello everyone welcome to the new episode of everyday talkies now before you jump on to listening to this episode wait take a breath smile get your regular dose of life changing entropy here on everyday talkies hello guys welcome to the new episode of everyday talkies we are back with another episode of guns jumps and steel and today we'll be discussing about chapter 16 so this is 17th episode uh before all of that hello pushkar welcome back hello for people who are listening to us um i think this is the same trope that we've been using forever now but go listen to the old episodes give us some lessons but if you don't want to do that um at least listen to the last episodes so that you have some context <laughs> but we'll still recap to you what has been happening since the past 16 or so episodes i'll quickly go through them let's see if i can do a better job than pushkar did in this last episode Basically, the book is Guns, Jumps, and Steel by Jared Diamond. It started with the chapter called Yali's Question, where the question was, um, you know, why did New Guinea lack the basic necessities for human development, uh, which was uh, in comparison to Europe or the other Eurasian nations? And basically, that uh, sprung into the main question, which was trying, which was supposed to be answered, or which is getting answered in this entire book. So initially, the first part started, you know, gave us some examples. First of all, we learned how the human beings developed in Africa and migrated towards the entire world. Then we, you know, learned about the two experiments of history: uh, the Maori Maori collision in Polynesia, then Spanish incursion in Peru that was Cajamarca, and then came, you know, the long, I think, five six chapter uh, discussion on the rise and spread of food production. So we learned about, you know, why farmers are important. You know, why do we need farming? And um, finally, we learned that uh, everything that we eat today came out of somebody's poop. Uh, that's just the normal thing that I have to say every time, and uh, we also learned that how there are certain factors which needs to go right for things to work out. Um, you know, we learned about this new Anna Karenina principle. Okay, still I can't pronounce. Uh, it's Pushkar's job to pronounce. But yeah, uh, listen to this chapter. That was interesting as well. And then we I think learned about uh, spacious skies and tilted axes. I think that was fun. Where we learned how latitudes and longitudes, and how areas distributed in uh, similar latitudes with similar weather, had um, you know more migration of food, technology, and everything. And then we finally come to the meat of the matter, where we learned about you know the evolution of germs, evolution of writing, then technology, and finally government and religion. And in this part, I think this is the last part of the book where we learn about the histories of different people around the world. Last chapter it was very fun where we learned about Australia, New Guinea, and some of the islands there. and today we'll be discussing basically china the chapter says how china became chinese but um, you know it also gives us nice insights into southeast asian asian culture here so with all of that background pushkar i know you were so per excited about reading these set of chapters right and especially you are very fascinated about southeast asian culture and all of that so before we jump into you know the contents of what jared diamond has to say like how did you feel about the chapter uh this chapter was uh disappointingly short in the sense that i wanted to learn a bit more about china's history post you know uh in the last 2000 uh, years at least mm-hmm. i i'd say because what he largely talks about is uh, relegated to uh, you know 8000 7000 years ago and uh, what not it was interesting i mean there was there's a lot of there's a lot of new knowledge in here that filled in some gaps that i previously had about history and uh, that was really good but yeah i think it would have helped if this chapter was a bit uh, longer but i get why jared diamond kept it short because um his expertise as far as i can tell is mostly related to 
um the fertile crescent papua new guinea and uh, all these other places that he has uh, spent time in he has like first hand experience of so it makes sense why he would spend more time on that and less time on china that he has maybe only experienced uh, second via secondary means like i second to the fact that you know that there were missing aspects even in the last chapter right where i was expecting more of recent history as you can call it but i understand the theme of the book is about human evolution right so i think recent history is more about um how uh, conquests and how people evolve like not evolved but culturally evolved but here we are basically trying to learn that why people exist the way they do right essentially so it i think predates the modern history period i guess i guess i was just expecting more about the uh, history of china in terms of guns germs and steel but yeah i i i get that and then i also uh, like this chapter really opened my eyes brains everything because i think one of the <laughs> biggest misconceptions that i had that how china became chinese okay let's not you know build build this up chapter too much and let's begin this so pushkar do you want to start us off okay so uh, the first thing that uh, he goes into jared diamond goes into regarding this chapter is that uh, china is big like I don't know if most people realize this. I mean, most people probably do, but uh, since I, okay, never mind. So most people probably realize that China is a big country, just landmass-wise. So when you talk about uh, the people of China, or when you talk about the Chinese, you are talking about a group of people that go from, uh, you know, that starts at like Tibet and goes all the way up to Manchuria, that has borders with Russia, borders with us, borders with uh, you know ten other countries that's close to Japan, and all these things. And you have to realize that there is no way that uh, all of these people, the Chinese people, can be one uh, monolithic. Um, subspecies you know like we, you can't you can't it's just impossible for all chinese people to be of the same to be the kind to be same more or less even in india right like india is a seventh largest country as we say like lot smaller than china but still seventh largest and uh, we pride ourselves with the kind of diversity we have and we can understand right that because you know people of different ethnic origins and because of a, such a big country and because of such landmass differences right you have different uh, human evolution and you know different languages and all of that but china has a very stark difference in this regard yeah you were saying no that's the thing that's what that's what i was getting at that when you look at china you have to realize that there is no way that they could be such a monolithic people but what is surprising about china is that they have been a culturally monolithic society for almost like more than 2000 years now which is what is most surprising like how did china as an entity become so like unanimous in a way just because of the sheer uh, fact that it has such a big size and such a big population so that's what uh, mainly what we go into in this chapter you know jared i'm teased a bit right in the beginning and even towards the end that i think one of the chinese dynasties basically united the entire uh, landmass of china around 200 bc that was yeah again yeah 2200 years ago but if you compare it with the recent conquest like uh, let's say the india the entire india was united not maybe you know mughal was still one end but then when british came in it was formally united the indian subcontinent all of it similarly with australia it was around in the 1800s 1900s with india it's we are still we can't say that we are united i mean we are a united country in that sense but we're not a monolithic culture yeah, like yeah. india is like yeah so you know the way china is like this big monolithic culture no but i'm not coming about culture i'm not talking about culture but you know just in the sense of uniting together from a landmass perspective right the thing was with australia also it happened let's say you know in the 
late 1800s 1900s with us it was a bit early around 1700s when the europe basically conquered the entire of the americas sorry yeah europe but with china because it it had a head start in terms of conquest in terms of unification i think that led to that monolithic culture which our time keeps on mentioning maybe see the thing is uh, what he goes into uh, essentially is that uh, there is a big there is a big factor that has to do with this kind of monolithic culture and that is language the uh, the speakers of chinese like uh, i think one thing he says uh, first is that um just due to climate northern china has a different climate than southern china which uh, which makes for like different types of people so northern chinese are uh, more similar to tibetans or nepalese and sud- while southern chinese are similar to vietnamese and filipinos which okay this is so counterintuitive for me to understand because southern china is more close to tibet and nepal and northern china is nowhere close to tibet and nepal but no but you also you also you have to, it, it's more to do with altitude right because yeah. nepalese and tibetans live at higher altitudes and north chinese live in manchuria which is also like relatively high altitude whereas south chinese who live near near to the south china sea along the coast they live at uh, lower altitudes and the people of southeast asia vietnamese and filipinos because they li- live on peninsular or island nations they also have that kind of a uh, that kind of a ethnic identity i guess i don't know but uh, yeah so uh, essentially like these are like some differences that china is not completely monolithic but the reason why it has um, retained this singular identity is because of uh, language and so when we talk about uh, the chinese language he says that the chinese language is divided in like six there are six different types of chinese right uh, I I don't know what all of them are I know one is uh, Mandarin the other is Cantonese or something uh, so there are like six major families of uh, Chinese I think there are eight there are eight big languages uh with Mandarin and seven close relatives with all of that but yeah it hardly matters go ahead yeah like he mentions there are eight big families and 130 small little languages the big family the main chinese uh, mandarin and its relatives so this language was was the majority that was, was spoken in china and the the minority was called the miaoyao which is a nice name uh, there was the miaoyao languages there, there was the austro asiatic languages and the tai kadai languages uh all of it sound very uh, interesting and also like uh, food names but okay uh yeah so what essentially uh, happened is that sometime uh, before sometime before 221 bc a lot of uh, when china kind of um, unif was unified under a dynasty it uh, either moved out the people who spoke these minority languages or converted these people to speak the uh, languages of the chinese big family which is one of the major reasons w- why uh, it could sustain in its identity as like uh, one big singular uh, monolith because if you look at what happened in india india for the longest time could never uh, unify itself until the british came at least because we were divided into different kingdoms and different dynasties just like china but we were divided on a very intrinsically um, on a very big level and we spoke different languages right so even though most of the languages had a similar base there was enough difference especially like in uh, the north and the south like uh, north indians spoke uh, languages that were derived from uh, sanskrit and in the south you had uh, dravidian languages which were like tamil telugu which were which had very little base in sanskrit i guess like, kannada still has a lot of um, 
uh, based on Sanskrit, but even the script was different. No, it's it's stuff like that. So those kinds of differences were hard to overcome for us. Plus the relative isolation that these kingdoms lived in, that they never really kind of um, came together to unify, and you know all these other differences. But yeah. i think it's not really completely explainable how china was able to sustain the way it did but uh, that's what uh, is so interesting about it that this culture had sustained for 2000 years yeah so you know the most fascinating thing for me in this was you know as you mentioned that how language basically determines the kind of diversity you have and that was very unique because india has so many different languages you have so much diversity and but china has it one major speaking mandarin so that's why you're calling it a unified country and this chapter basically explored how mandarin and its big families were actually part of north china right where the you know climate was more drier more like tibet and all of that well yeah essentially like we saw in the last chapter why new guinea had uh, farming food production in the uh, high, higher altitude regions than in the lower altitude regions correct exactly. so we can yeah here he mentions that uh, uh, food production grew in two separate places in china right which let which i guess uh, led to these two different cultures kind of um, flourishing but one of those was significantly larger than the other and that is what very mentions that either by conquest or by the fact that these people had a major edge in food production as we as you talked about in the last step chapter as well that you know people living at higher altitudes had you know year around food they could they could plan it out similarly in dry areas food production was not that great and there were sparse populations of these small small languages and because there was no there was a bigger i would say unification in northern china and many sparse populations in southern china so basically the northern chi- uh, china uh, people conquered the entire of china using the you know by the early dynasties or by 200 or whatever bc and the southern chinese families were all pushed down to southeast asia so basically yeah. what jared diamond mentioned is vietnam philippines thailand all of these areas are basically descendants of south china people so they're actually chinese people living there like it's it's baffling they are a kind of chinese i guess because most chinese in china right now are majority north chinese exactly. and uh, southeast asian people are uh, south chinese it's interesting to note that there is uh, it's hard to gauge a reason why all these things traveled from north to south in a way that these languages cultures technologies traveled from north china to south china and very little traveled from south china upwards uh, it's almost like gravity was was on their side it's, it it was just like a rolling ball that came down no but we learned about this no in, even in north even in new guinea it happened right that in south china because of the because they could not unify because there was no uh, food production in that large scale as compared to north china they could not unify right they lived they lived in bands they lived in tribes they maybe formed small villages but north china was the first where they had big chiefdoms right where the biggest dynasties usually originated and then they conquered the small populations so basically you know like spaniards coming into peru and decimating a small population and the other inca empire does not even know that one of their cities has have been captured and that is what happened with south china and you know the most shocking thing is that the original languages in southeast asia like thailand and all of those are actually lost because the re- the languages that are currently spoken are actually derived from south china and the original languages are maybe residing in some corner of some island where somebody speaks and nobody really knows and it's only residing with a small family of people but that set of languages which originated in southeast asia is completely lost i mean that way if you look about it uh, if you look at it china was like one of the first and the biggest empires that kind of stayed that kind of retained its identity for the longest time because uh, if you look at another empire that used to um, thrive during the same time 
which was the Roman Empire. You know, it was just around 2000 years ago. And but Roman, the Roman Empire fell to decline and completely was completely wiped out. Like uh, rarely, uh, you know, there are people today who uh, you know follow the Roman religion, follow the Roman way of life, uh, worship Roman gods. But even today, China is going strong. You know, China has it has retained its cultural identity as much as it can. Uh, one thing which came to my mind was, do you know, this example also correlates with the one that we were also looking for Australia, right, as a whole, uh, where Europeans basically use up uh, Native Americans and you know Native, sorry, Native Australians and that languages. And I think it's for America also makes sense, right? Native American languages are all lost. It's <laughs> basically now English there, um, which was originated from Europe. And similarly, you know, he gives examples of Africa where Bantu languages were, I think, basically use up the original Pygmy languages in South Africa. Moving on to the point where, like we discussed, how you know the Chinese civilization evolved and how it was unified, and we know what a significant impact it has uh, in the entire world. But coming to that entire, you know, guns, germs, and steel, uh, steel section, where uh, he mentions that how you know the same geographical differences gave the uh, gave North China an edge, right, where they could develop more polished stone tools, more better technology, writing, and all of that was developed there, and that helped that gave them a more added advantage and uh, you know we learned i think in one of the chapters in the food production state that china was one of the world's first centers of plant and animal domestication as well i mean you already mentioned this but this essentially gave them such a head start that their influence is still felt to this day i mean uh Japan and Korea for the longest time were using scripts that were that, that were derived from the Chinese language. Like Japan still uses it. I think Korea has uh, developed a new one, but uh, that's what it is. I mean, uh, just to have developed food production um, a few thousand years before some other people gave them such a big advantage um, in terms of influence and the influencing history for the next ten uh, thousand years or, and maybe even more. Uh, like I was just reading towards the end, he mentioned right that how. Uh, even though you know Japan cannot um, enunciate some of their languages uh, using Chinese script, they still use that. And Korea is now like in the 21st century and 20th century replacing that. You know, it tells us these changes, the recent future. We don't even have to look like so many years into the past. It's happening right in front of us. But yeah, coming back to the whole point of you know animal domestication and all of that, I think it's all a repetitive thing which we have said because it all draws back from the initial chapters. I think which we, if people have been following us from day one, they understand that how you know the small small factors, how the temperate region, the fertile crescent region, the fact that uh, China and fertile crescent lies at the same latitude gives them an added you know environmental impact that food production could develop there. It had the means to have you know the basic domesticated animals, which led them to be one of. I don't know. Do you, can you call them one of the superpowers of the world today? I think, yeah, I guess. Of like China is, the, yeah. China is the biggest labor market. It's biggest manufacturing agent in today's world, and uh, and with the kind of government that they have, I know we are diverting maybe probably some topic, but with the kind of government that they have, that size of economy, like just the sheer size, it it contains one seventh or slightly more than one seventh of world's population in that small area cramped back together, and it is you know being ruled by a very closed, highly tight governed. Uh, state, you know, recently I I just heard that they they basically stopped encouraging all the you know online educators, all those platforms. They stopped promoting them, and those companies started just uh, going down. Imagine one day, you know, Indian government announces, "By Jews, your work is done." You know, all education should be free. Online. No, that's what that's what happened with PUBG. Like PUBG had to uh, when PUBG was banned in India, that that created such a big rift. Uh, like now it's back under a different name, but. Uh, 
you know back then when they banned it with, along with some other apps and everything that created such a big rift and uh, even you look at tiktok tiktok was banned in india and that's why uh, instagram could basically swoop in in that vacuum and kind of dominate the market with reels and everything and, and this is all completely off topic but essentially uh, what we're trying to say is that uh, china because of having such an advantage because of creating such a big civilization such a big uh, uh, monolithic kingdom uh, empire you could say in a way it has now so much uh, influence over the rest of the world and uh, what is so um, astonishing is that this influence ultimately in a country of like more than uh, 1 billion people rests in the hands of like maybe a few uh, dozen or a few hundred at ma- at most which is uh, ridiculous to think about this one funny thing which i related with you know in the book there was a, a line which was mentioned that when uh, north and south china was first united under the qin dynasty around 200, uh, 221 uh, bc so he basically um, termed the south uh, chinese people as barbarians right illiterate barbarians and he mentioned that all previously written historical books are worthless and ordered them to be burned and it reminded me of the data crisis and the data the information holding that uh, chinese government does that how all the data that chinese people generate are in control of the state government and that is why the whole rift between pubg tiktok and all these apps came out right that all the 128 or so chinese apps got one got banned because they were collecting data of the entire world you know even companies like apple and uh, you know this big google agencies they google does not even operate in china and apple succumb to china chinese market you know apple you know propagates what privacy of data i mean how well sir how else are they going to uh, make their uh, products so cheaply exactly true right and because of that what they did was you know apple was a huge proponent of privacy like and that is what even when supreme court i think or one of the courts asked them to unlock a serial killer's iphone they said no but when chinese government puts the pressure they said okay keep all the data i will uh, create a whole new server for your people in your country and uh, that's it i don't know we just diverted totally yeah we did but i think one thing i find uh, most interesting is that um, china its influence you can feel it all over southeast asia even uh, japan and uh, we can feel its uh, influence going all over uh, the west but uh, it uh, like funnily enough it did not go the other way no but if you see right because chinese unification happened so soon europeans by the time they you know came across china china was already a you know developing country you could say as a whole so you know they did not have european influence as much that's that's fine what i'm saying is china it tended to it went south and to the uh, right i guess if you looked at it on a map it okay. wasn't able to go it wasn't able to go to the uh, west and uh, or, or to the north i guess no i guess they dominated the north but it it did not wasn't able to conquer uh, towards the west and uh, especially like what i find interesting is Uh, there is definitely some chinese influence in india but largely for the last 2000 years it has um, china has remained largely um, separated from us and you can, we can all agree that it's largely because of the himalayan reach uh, even with such a big empire even with this empire that we just talked about that it has so much influence uh, it's it's kind of uh, funny to think that for the la- la- longest time they were thwart- thwarted because of uh, essentially what is a mountains um <laughs> Yeah, yeah, nothing so comes like, close to beating nature. 
and uh, and just like that in the west as well you had the hindu kush mountains that also i think were a big reason why uh, the chinese empire could not move uh, you know westward into like russia or uh, maybe the eastern european states and all these stuff so yeah that is one thing i find uh, interesting in a way that uh, no, it's not just uh, the culture and it's not just food production and climate that uh, defined how the chinese uh, empire expanded but the geography of the world also defined how they could not expand you know import i don't know these questions were never answered let me ask you this you know i think towards the end he mentioned that how you know we were talking about how uh, south china basically came down to viet uh, you know vietnam and indonesia and all these areas and the original people from these areas migrated and basically became extinct and he mentioned that they were they situated in the malaya peninsula andaman islands and i want to stress there and sri lanka right so there are there is some like the original people the original original people of southeast asia reside in some areas of sri lanka some areas of andaman and you know now i wonder is our south indian script right is that derivation from some old version of original southeast asian writings or languages no i mean there is there is evidence there is uh, i think we've talked about this before but there is a lot of uh, indian influence that go, not i mean indian exactly because it is more dravidian influence that exists in uh, you know the southeast asian countries like thailand indonesia uh, cambodia like for uh, for example the temples at Ang- uh, angkor wat they are like super old like let me just uh... so basically you know initially we were discussing that how india had an influence over them but now it might just be that they had an influence over us rather than the other way around so listen so for example the K- cambodian temples of angkor wat they were built uh, in the 12th century uh, by he was uh, it's the khmer king suryavarman so that's essentially in like a south indian name so what you what you are saying basic what you see basically is that all these dravidian cultures so in a way they kind of maybe they existed they originated in southeast asia and then moved to india or maybe they were in india and then they uh, migrated to southeast asia but uh, for the longest time there was a link between um, the southeast asian world and um, our uh, southern world and uh, i think what this chapter fills in the gap is why so much of that was eroded in a way because the south chinese people were pushed down uh, like further south and south and they kind of um, replaced all these other cultures that existed already and it would have been the same way with uh, india i guess in a way but they were they couldn't do that because of the himalayas you know but then this brings me to another question and maybe you know we can end with this you know china is in very close proximity to russia there's mongolia and then you know comes russia i'm wondering you know how like why wasn't there an impact towards the northern side right we understood why you know because of hindu kush it could not go you know westwards because of himalayas it could not go southwards oh right? i do have an answer for that it's it's the thing that has kept russia safe throughout the two world wars and any major conflict it's the russian winter ah so you can't uh, you can't go against nature as much as you try uh i mean today maybe you could but not like say uh 900 1000 years ago you could you simply just like you had to uh, uh you had to respect the natural barrier and uh, yeah but uh, there is an exception exception to that which is the mongolians the mongolian empire spread ridiculously fast uh, all over the world they had absolutely no limits and uh, yeah i mean maybe we'll learn about the uh, mongolian empire someday because they are uh, they're a very uh, interesting bunch to learn about but i think but that brings us basically to the end of this chapter uh, i know this was a short one and a quick one but it gives us a nice insight like it it fills in a few gaps 
yeah it basically tells me that southeast asia is not southeast asia the original people are just lost in history and it's actually chinese people who are uh, you know people have just uh, inherited evolved from them yeah. are they even chinese anymore after like 2000 years now that is also true you know i think we we learned right that the romans are the romans because they were an actual romans which were usurped by other romans or other germans actually the germans but yeah i think yeah these events go on but yeah i guess but it gives us a nice picture of how you know the human civilization spread and every episode like every episode you know we say this every after we this the fact that how much nature played a role in our evolution is you know uncountable you know today i think today is what uh, 10th of august so 11th august right what if launches from uh, marvel and this brings me to the whole concept that what if you know himalayas were not there what if these uh, mountains or these you know russian winter was not there would chinese empire would have propagated or would europe uh, be the one to break it to china first like how would the world would we be doing this podcast in mandarin ha huh, maybe maybe who knows you know there was this episode uh, in big bang theory where uh, amy and sheldon they had this small competition right where they would say that what if pigs do not exist in the world and they would uh, link it somewhere to some uh, ruler winning over the other world and only, i'm like you know i'm very fascinated by this alternate histories as they say it but because of my so so poor and limited knowledge i can't really understand how will one small change of pigs not existing impact the entire world but now after reading guns and steel pigs are very important let's not <laughs> let's skip that but yeah it's a fascinating thing to just think about a mental exercise for everyone it's great to understand all of this and uh, this is all giving me great ideas for really good stories that i might or might not write in the future you know <laughs> fantasy novels set in a fantastic land that is vaguely inspired from uh, pre chinese influence india or like pre chinese influence southeast asia who knows let's see but yeah with that i think it brings us to the end of this episode next chapter we'll be learning more about polynesia and basically the pacific islands which we you know did not learn much about in australian new guinea we'll understand how this is different and how they evolved differently because then that basically links up to you know the whole american culture as well apparently no pacific islands are part of america not part of america okay all of that in the next episode okay, but, okay. Uh, america is an empire that has been annexing states for the longest time but it's been doing it covertly and uh, this might or might not become an easter egg for another mini series that we might or might not do in the future uh, let's <laughs> with that i think thank you guys for listening to this episode and we'll meet you soon in the next one till then keep on listening and yeah listen to the old episodes i'm sure you enjoyed will enjoy them listen to puskar's voice for it bye guys bye bye thank you for listening to this episode follow us on social media and do let us know if you want to be part of the next episode till then Live long and prosper.